welcome to Just Another True Crime Podcast. We're your hosts, Natasha. And Alan. First of all, thank you to everyone who followed us on Instagram last week. I don't know if it was just because of the case we covered or that none of y'all were following us and you actually listened, but holy crap. We went from like 198 to 260 in like three days, which I was like, what? So anyway, we're now quickly on our way to 300 followers. So if you want to be part of that, follow us on Instagram. And if it wasn't y'all and it's our new listeners, welcome to this podcast. Anyway, today we're going to be covering uh, Ruby Ridge. But before we start talking, let's get into our suggestions for the week. My suggestion for the week is True Crime Fan Club. True Crime Fan Club is a podcast hosted by Lainey, who has the most spectacular podcasting voice in the whole entire world. You probably already listened to it, but in case you don't, she's been podcasting for about two years. I think she's twice a month, which is nice. Her voice is worth it, no matter what. Just go listen just for her voice. She's amazing. I mean, she does great work and everything, but her voice, uh, beautiful. So, what is your suggestion for the week, Alan? I have two. The first one... Is a shout out to Walmart. Walmart brand meatballs, delicious. Ew. Put them in the oven, take them out, throw some sauce on there. Mmm, delicious. That sounds disgusting. Now the second thing, which Natasha's actually gonna really like, I actually started listening to a podcast. Love it. It's called Graveyard Tales. It's basically all night shift jobs because you know how I feel about night shift. Love it. And so they just talk about different jobs, including corrections. And how, what it's that like to be a night shift employee. You started a podcast. I started listening to a podcast. I am so proud of you. It was really cool. Now you have to go back and do all the ones I suggested already and listen to those. But, you, I mean, you listen to Case File with me sometimes in the car. Just oh, yeah. Me. Yeah, because that dude is just like... You wouldn't like My Favorite Murder. It's not for you. No. I, I saw them, remember, with you? Oh, yeah. You went to the live show. And I was them. kind of... Eh. eh. So... Today we're going to talk about Ruby Ridge. Ruby Ridge is the location of an 11-day siege involving the Weaver family and the federal government. Now, let me set the scene. Ruby Ridge is the southernmost of four ridges that are extended east from the Bottleneck Nose Mountains range near Naples, Idaho. Naples, Idaho is located in North Idaho, less than an hour from the Canadian border. If you're not familiar with America, Idaho is located in the northwest region of the continental United States. It borders Washington State, Oregon, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, and Canada. Ruby Ridge is in an extremely remote area, and around the time that this takes place, which is the early 90s, it was most mostly known for right-wing extremist organizations such as the Aryan Nations. What? <laughs> a lot of research from this episode is from a documentary on Netflix called Ruby Ridge. It's really well done, and a lot of the commentary is done by Randy Weaver's oldest daughter, Sarah Weaver. And there's also one of the U.S. Marshals that was there the day the siege began. I would highly recommend watching it. It's very good. It's only an hour. So now let's talk about Randy Weaver. Randy Weaver was born January 3rd, 1948. Weaver was one of four children born to Clarence and Wilma Weaver in the small farming town of Villisca, Iowa. At the age of 20, Weaver dropped out of community college and enrolled in the United States Army. At this point, America was already involved in Vietnam, so he was assigned to the Special Forces Unit and became a Green Beret. In 1970, he secured a temporary leave, and that is when he began dating his future wife, Vicki. In October 1971, Weaver received an honorable discharge from the Army, and one month later, he married his wife, Vicki. After they were married, Randy Weaver enrolled at the University of Northern Iowa to study criminal justice. Weaver apparently wanted to become an FBI agent. You'll see the irony in that later. Weaver eventually dropped out due to the cost of tuition. Uh, Weaver began working at a local John Deere factory while Vicki worked as a secretary. 
Randy and Vicky would go on to have four children, Sarah, who was featured in this documentary, Samuel, Rachel, and Alishba. Wait, I don't think that's how you say your name. Aleshba. Alishaba. Alishaba. I think it's Alishaba. I think it's religious. I just don't know how to pronounce religious things. So Rachel and Alishba were actually born while the Weaver family was living on Ruby Ridge. Around 1978, Vicky, who was very religious, began having dreams that an apocalypse was coming and that she believed her family would only survive by living on a mountaintop. So that's what they did. Solid. After Samuel was born, the Weaver family began selling all of their belongings. Part of the reason they decided to leave Iowa was the farm crisis that Iowa was having. Local farmers were losing their family farms and Randy was worried he was going to lose his job. But it was mainly due to Vicky's religious beliefs that the apocalypse was imminent. Sarah remembers her mother talking about the Bible a lot, and she began to see changes around the house. There was no more television, and she, uh, the family started looking to the Bible and taking it a lot more literally. In 1983, the Weavers purchased several acres of land on Ruby Ridge and began building. Literally, they just had land. There was nothing there. Uh, Randy, Vicky, and their two kids built the house from the ground up. They had no running water and no electricity. They were literally just living off of the land. Sarah said that her and her brother loved growing up on the mountain, and it made their family unit very close. Well, because they literally just had each other. In 1984, Weaver and a neighbor were involved in a lawsuit over a land dispute. The neighbor actually lost the lawsuit and was ordered to pay Randy $5,100. The neighbor then called the FBI, Secret Service, and the county sheriff, alleging that Randy had threatened to kill the Pope, the President, and the Governor of Idaho. The neighbor also said that Randy was a member of the Aryan Nations and had a large gun collection. In January of 1985, the Secret Service and the FBI began an investigation on the Weaver family, but no charges were ever filed. The investigation did note that Randy Weaver had associated with Frank Kumnick. Kumnick was believed to be associated with the Aryan Nations, but it was later revealed he was associated with the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. The hell is that? Or CSA. CSA was a far-right terrorist organization dedicated to the Christian identity and survivalist movement. They were active from the early 70s to the mid-80s. Randy and Vicky filed an affidavit with the county courthouse on February 28, 1985, alleging that their personal enemies were plotting to provoke the FBI into attacking and killing the Weaver family. On May 6, 1985, Randy and Vicky sent a letter to President Ronald Reagan claiming that their enemies had forged their signatures and that they had never sent a letter threatening him. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF, first became aware of the Weaver family in July of 1986. Weaver was introduced to a confidential ATF informant at a meeting at the World Aryan Congress. The World Aryan Congress is an annual meeting held by the Aryan Nations so that members of other chapters can meet each other. The World Aryan Congress brings different people from all over the country. Some believe that the government is the enemy, some are super religious, and some are atheists. The one common quality they share is white pride. The Weavers originally started associating with the Aryan Nations purely from a social aspect, since they literally lived on a mountain with just the four of them. They were only located a few miles away from a big Aryan Nations compound. They were also struggling with their identities and religious beliefs when they first got to Idaho, um, and they believed some of the ide ideology of the Aryan Nations, but not all of it. They did not want to join, but Randy would sometimes go to the compound just to meet people. He would bring his children so that they could get correct, you know, socialization. And let me just tell you about the Aryan Nations. So, they're an anti-Semitic, neo-Nazi, white supremacist religious organization based in Hayden, Idaho. They teach that the white Anglo-Saxon Christians are the true descendants of the lost tribes of Israel and Jews are children of the devil. They also believe that people of color are less than human. So yeah, they fucking suck. Anyway, the informant told Randy that he was a weapons dealer. 
Beaver had been invited to the World Airing Congress by Frank Kumnick. Kumnick was the original target of the ATF. Randy and the informant would meet several times over the next three years, and in July of 1989, Weaver invited the informant to his house to discuss forming the Zionist Organized Government. In October of 1989, the ATF claimed that Weaver sold the informant two sawed-off shotguns. It should be noted that Weaver is not a criminal, like, up until that point, but I guess he was struggling financially, and they kind of were like, well, we can help you out, solve some shotguns for us, and we'll, you know, pay you for it. Which homeboy lived on a mountain, so... Yeah. I'm sure income's kind of scarce. In November of 1989, Weaver accused the ATF informant of being an ATF informant. Apparently, (laughs) the FBI also had an informant named Rico Valentino, who openly outed the ATF informant to the Aryan Nation security. What the fuck? Wait, ATF? FBI FBI outed outed ATF to the Aryan Nation. Where's your fucking professional courtesy, guys? Bro, I know. So, okay, that part was from the Wikipedia article, so I don't know how accurate it is, but... But if it is, it's fucked up. Yes. In June of 1990, ATF agent Byerly attempted to use the sawed-off shotgun charge as leverage to get Weaver to act as an informant for his investigation, since his last informant was outed. Weaver refused to become a snitch. Totally get it. Because he refused, the ATF filed gun charges and also claimed that Weaver was a bank robber. Weaver was not a bank robber and had never been a bank robber in his whole entire life. I don't know why they said that. They pulled that one out of their ass. Yeah, super random and weird. Um, In December of 1990, a federal grand jury indicted Weaver for making and possessing illegal weapons in October of 1989. And this is where our story begins. So the ATF believed that it would be way too dangerous just to send officers to his house to arrest him for the federal indictment. So in January of 1991, they posed as broken-down motorists, and when Randy and his wife Vicky stopped to assist them because they're nice little Idahoans, I don't know if that's what they're called, they arrested Randy and took him to jail. Randy was released on bond with a promise to appear for trial on February 19, 1991. The trial date was then moved to the 20th, but a letter was not sent to Randy telling him this. It was only sent to his attorney. Also, Randy doesn't have a phone because he doesn't have electricity. Keep that in mind. Because so, he lives on a mountain. So snail mail is his options. The letter R- Randy received told him that his court date was set for March 20th, not February 20th. So obviously Randy didn't show up for his court date because he literally had received the wrong date. Well, when he didn't show up, Judge Ryan issued a warrant for failure to appear. A reporter then made contact with the probation officer that was in charge of giving Randy a copy of his court information, and the reporter asked if he didn't show up because he was given the wrong date. The probation officer realized his mistake and informed the judge and the U.S. Marshals of his error, but Judge Ryan refused to withdraw the warrant. The U.S. Marshals were now in charge of arresting Randy because if you don't show up for federal court, you are considered a fugitive, no matter if you're innocent or guilty later in life. So the Marshals agreed to put off executing the warrant until after March 20th to see if Randy Weaver would show up for his court. But then the U.S. Attorney's Office decided to call a grand jury on March 14th, which is before, about failing to appear. They failed to include into evidence that the letter Randy had been issued had March 20th as a date. So, obviously, everyone that was on the grand jury was like, yeah, he failed to appear, issue a warrant. So, let's keep in mind that Randy Weaver does not trust the government. Not only because his religion is telling him not to, but he also feels like he's getting set up. He had an investigation brought on to him because his neighbor literally lied and told the police he had threatened to kill the president. Then, at his very first Aryan Nations meeting, he made contact with the only ATF informant in the whole entire place, and he just happens to be the chosen one for that. 
Then he receives a letter with the wrong date for his court date, and he is having a lot of trouble communicating with his lawyer. He's, like, not making contact with him, and then he has to talk to a probation officer, which doesn't even make any sense because he's not on probation. So it's just, like, a big mess. So he's just, feel from his perspective for a second, he does not trust the government. But then another thing to add to it is he's told if he loses his court, like, if he loses his trial, his house will be taken away and his wife and children will be homeless. That is not true whatsoever. If he fails to show up, then his house will be taken away because he uses his house as his bond. So he's terrified to go to trial because he's terrified if he loses, his wife and kids are going to be homeless. So obviously at this point, he's like, no, fuck y'all. Y'all are setting me the fuck up. So the next part in this is the U.S. Marshals begin doing a threat assessment, basically to identify what the best option for bringing in the fugitive is. Their threat assessment concluded that Randy wasn't going to run because he had ties to his community and he had a family. Also, he had no income whatsoever, so I don't know where he's going to go. The threat assessment did show that he was extremely committed to his cause, which made the situation more serious. Basically, they think that He's part of this white nationalist movement and, you know, they also said that because he was a former Green Beret, he would booby trap his entire house and he would be armed all the time, which he was totally armed all the time. Accurate. Um, And they believe that Vicki Weaver would rather kill her own children than give them up to the government. Sarah said that her parents decided to stay up on the mountain until the situation got figured out. So they stayed up there the whole summer and winter of 1991. Wow. Yeah. They had friends come and bring them food and supplies, and Vicky actually gave birth to her youngest daughter during that time. On a mountain, with no electricity, no hot water, uh, hell no. Props to her, though. Good job, Vicky. The media caught wind of the story and started running articles. They were talking about how the marshals knew exactly where the family was located, but refused to go up and get them. Basically being like, look at these hoes, they're not doing a good enough job because they're letting this guy on a mountain control their life. So the marshals then put in motion-activated cameras on the mountain, pointing out the residents to basically see what they were up to and who was actually there. Uh, the camera showed that Randy Weaver was up there with his wife, four children, and a man named Kevin Harris. They showed that everyone that lived there was frequently armed. Basically, they always had guns on them. The U.S. marshals did not know what to do, so they continued to wait. And in May of 1992, Randy Weaver did an interview with a newspaper. And in the newspaper, he's quoted as saying, This whole thing started when I found out what a bunch of liars preachers are. Our situation is not about shotguns. It's about our beliefs. They want us to shut our mouths. Basically, like, the government wants to shut us down. So that's what this whole situation is. He also basically said he didn't care what the marshals did. He wasn't going to come off of his mountain. The marshals brought in their special surveillance team to find a location for them to take him, like, in at. On the morning of August 21st, 1992, the marshals approached the mountain with two teams of six people. So each team has three people on it. One team went up the mountain to gain a vantage point and just observe the family. The point of this uh, intelligence operation was just to gather more information and make sure they were aware of, okay, are these, is it still the same people living in the house? Like, have they done anything to the house? Just, you know, routine. The other three were, like, newer deputies, and they were going with, like, a more experienced person who was going to show them, like, the layout so they kind of knew what to expect. If anything ever happened and they needed to go in, they would know where to go. A little field training. Exactly. So the other team went a different direction when the family started, dog started barking at them. The dog was tracking the three deputies. Randy, his son Samuel, who at the time was 14, and Kevin Harris decided to go check it out because they heard the dog barking. All three of them grabbed guns and headed in the direction of the darking, the darking bog. 
and headed in the direction of the barking dog. The family's version of events for what happens next is that the weavers end up at a Y-shaped trail. So basically, you know, you meet in the middle. And they met the team of three in the middle. Samuel then notices that the three men have killed his dog. And he said, quote, you've killed my dog, you sons of bitches, and opens fire on them. The deputies then fire back, killing Samuel Weaver. The marshals' versions of the story is that when they all meet at the Y, the marshals identify themselves as marshals and call out a surrender order. The marshals said that Kevin Harris then dives for cover and begins shooting, which resulted in the death of Marshal William Deegan. They were unaware at the time, basically the marshals were unaware that Samuel was dead and the Weaver family was unaware that a marshal was dead. So both of these people just pretty much said that they were both attacked by each other. I mean, the Weavers admit that they fired shots first, but they're saying their 14-year-old did it versus a grown man. So, I don't know. It's a fuck situation regardless. Either way, yes. Two people are dead. Well, one person and one child. Randy Weaver then returns to the house by himself. Kevin then comes back to the house and tells the house that Sam is dead. Vicky told everyone that they needed to go get his body. She basically went into mom mode, like, don't leave him out there by himself. They returned with the body, and Sarah said that Sam had been shot once in the elbow and once in the back. The U.S. Marshals on the mountain then contact the Marshals' office, like the local one, to inform them that one of their own is dead and request all the help that they can get. And so begins the siege. The news that a federal agent has been shot reaches Washington, and the media is now made aware of the situation. The FBI then becomes the leads on the cases due to, like, all the circumstances. The FBI deploys its hostage rescue team to Idaho. The FBI hostage rescue team is basically like SWAT on steroids. The FBI is told that Randy Weaver is a very dangerous man with involvement in the Christian identity movement and ties to the neo-Nazis. The hostage rescue team is also told that the surrender warning has also been issued by the U.S. Marshals, so they don't need to reissue it. And that they can open fire at any time on any adult that is armed. Fun fact, they're all armed all the time, and they don't need to basically say, okay, surrender or we'll shoot you, they just can shoot. And they're also said, it's also said that they're told they can and should use deadly force, like, that is implied. On August 22nd, 1992, Randy tells his family that he's going to see Sam one last time. So when they brought Sam's body up, they put him in the shed, so Randy and Kevin head out towards the shed to see Sam. Sarah decides to follow them out. She then hears a gunshot and runs toward her dad. Randy Weaver has been shot. Vicki Weaver walks out to the front porch holding her 10-month-old baby and asks what happened. Sarah tells, tells her that Randy has been shot, so she starts screaming for them to get inside the house. Sarah pushes her dad through the door, and her mom is standing behind her holding her 10-month-old baby. Kevin starts walking back towards the house when another shot is rung out. Vicki Weaver fell to the ground dead. She was shot while holding her 10-month-old baby. Randy Weaver picks up his daughter and rushes everyone in the house. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fucked. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to shoot while there was a child. Who? Okay. Meanwhile, the media and the Weaver family supporters began camping out near the roadblock the police had established two miles from the residence. The media was not privy to what was going on. They were told that a white separatist family had started shooting at law enforcement and that it resulted in the death of a marshal. It wasn't until the FBI discovered Samuel Weaver's body that the narrative changed. So at some point during the siege, they like get closer and closer to the house where they locate Samuel's body. And they're to- they tell, like, everyone that they're, you know, they found his body. So the media was then told of the death of Samuel we- Weaver, and even more people started showing up and showing their support for the Weaver family. They were disgusted that law enforcement had killed a 14-year-old boy. 
Once a day, the FBI would hold a press conference, but they were super political and really didn't say anything. Um, Neo-Nazi groups also began showing up because they were, like, right on the road. And a group of skinheads actually attempted to smuggle firearms to the Weavers. Obviously, they were the dumbest people on the earth because the house was surrounded by literally hundreds of law enforcement officials from different local, state, and federal agencies. So, obviously, they were caught. Dumb as fuck. Well, that didn't go over well. Yeah. Media officials began speaking to the Weavers' friends and family back in Iowa. Their friends and family began sharing the Weaver family that they knew... And basically they were saying that the family just took the to the woods because they believed that the end of the world was coming. The media then shifted the t- narrative even more in the favor of the Weavers. The hostage negotiation team had failed to make contact with the family. The Weaver family did not have a landline as there was no electricity, so they just began yelling at the house with a bullhorn. At this point, the negotiators weren't aware that Vicky was dead. The person who shot her apparently hadn't realized they had shot her. They were aiming for Kevin, but actually shot Vicky, who was holding a 10-month-old baby. I'm sorry, but how are you literally going to be some of the best trained snipers in the entire world, and you don't, not only you shoot the wrong person, but you shoot someone holding a baby, and then you don't even realize they're dead. All right, my my problem with that is you're always trained to uh, uh, have your sight on your target. Yeah. And so... Would you just look away? Like, no. Like, yeah, I don't get that. That seems like he took that order to take the shot, and he took a shot. He knew who he was shooting at. That's my personal opinion, but... I know. Whatever. So, since they weren't aware of the death, they began each morning by saying, Vicky, send the children out. We're making pancakes. Vicky, why won't you come talk to oh, us? Jesus. We won't harm you. The FBI believed Vicky was very influential over Randy, so they thought she was the best person to talk to. Inside the cabin, where Vicky is laying dead on the floor, the family believes that the FBI is taunting them. Randy began yelling at them, you shot my wife, you cowardly sons of bitches, but nobody actually heard him, unfortunately. In his mind, Randy believed that everything he knew and believed about the federal government was true and that they were literally just trying to kill him. So did the kids. Sarah said multiple times that she literally thought they were just trying to kill them, like execute them. As of the sixth day, the media still did not know that Vicki Weaver was dead. Sarah Weaver said in the documentary that the FBI had proven that they were about to shoot them. So basically she said, so them begging us to come out was them begging us to come to our deaths, in my opinion. Which is pretty accurate from what she's seen so far. Randy Weaver had not made contact with the FBI at this point. The FBI realized that Randy was not going to talk to them, obviously. That's when Bo Greitz rolled up to the scene. Bo Greitz was a retired lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He was also a third-party candidate for president that year. He was running under the campaign Gun, God, and Greitz. He also published his manifesto called The Bill of Greitz, which is a cute little pun. The FBI used Greitz to talk to Randy Weaver because they're both former Green Berets, so they have that connection. The FBI drove Greitz to the house and Greitz started talking to Randy. The first thing Randy said to Greitz was, they have killed Vicky. So Greitz talked to him for about an hour and then he headed up to the mountain and basically the first thing he said to the FBI was like, you fucked this one up. So, Greitz informed the FBI that Randy had been shot, Kevin had been shot, and Vicky was dead. The media announced the death of Vicky, and if you watch the documentary, there is a, like, because they're recording it, it's literally like the FBI guy goes, spokesperson dude is like, the kids are doing okay, and um, Randy's been shot, but he's doing okay, and Kevin's been shot, um, and he's doing okay, and then, well, um, Vicky Weaver is dead. And they all go, <gasps> it is not so. Kevin was the initial target of the shot that killed Vicky. Apparently, the shot went through Vicky and into Kevin's arm and then into his chest. He was critically injured and was begging for the Weavers to end his life. 
The following day, Greitz went and talked to Weaver and convinced him to let Kevin come out of the house. Kevin came out and was life-flighted to Spokane, Washington. He would survive his gunshot wound. Greitz then brought a body bag into the house for Vicky. Greitz and Randy loaded Vicky's body into the bag and Greitz carried her out. On the last day, Greitz talked to Randy and convinced him and his family to leave peacefully. Basically, he was like, me and the girls prayed last night and we decided we're not coming out. They'll have to come get us. But Greitz was like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Randy was arrested and transported to the meadow where the headquarters had been set up uh, to get his gunshot wound looked at. They shot video of Randy getting his gunshot wound cleaned, and he's telling, basically he's talking about his wife, and it was literally so sad. He said, quote, you guys wouldn't believe how pretty my wife was. Jesus Christ, first time I saw her, if I ever thought this was going to happen, I'd have never. I broke in on a friend of mine dancing with her. I should have let Nick have her. Damn. I know. That's so sad. In 1993, Kevin Harris and Randy Weaver were tried for first-degree murder and the death of U.S. Marshal William Deegan. After the longest jury deliberations in Idaho history, both Weaver and Harris were acquitted. Weaver was found guilty of, a, of his original sawed-off shotgun charge and served 18 months in federal prison. Basically, he just did four because he'd been sitting in prison doing the murder charge. In 1995, the Weavers sued the United States government for the deaths of Samuel and Vicki Weaver. They settled for $3.1 million in damages. The government did not admit to any wrongdoing. An anonymous employee of the Department of Justice later told the Washington Post he believed Randy Weaver would have won his lawsuit if the case had gone to trial, because they originally sued for $200 million. In 1997, Lon Harichi, the sniper who shot Vicki Weaver, was charged with manslaughter, but the charges were later dismissed. Harichi was also present during Waco. Timothy McVeigh had a particular hatred for Harichi and would often print out cards with Harichi's address and phone number on them in hopes that somebody in the Patriot movement would assassinate the sniper. He wrote hate mail to him and even considered attacking Harichi and his family, but settled for Oklahoma City instead. McVeigh viewed Ruby Ridge as clear evidence that the federal government aimed to disarm the public and take people's Second Amendment rights away. And pretty much Ruby Ridge plus Waco is why Oklahoma City even happened. What are your thoughts? I mean, as you were going over it, it made me remember the documentary. And I was just picturing it in my head because I remember it and it was fucked. That was a fuck situation. I mean, there was problems on both ends, I agree. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know. Do you truly believe the government's out to get you? Like, I understand why he didn't want to leave his mountain. Yeah, he had. He was paranoid. They were extremely paranoid. Understandable. Well, they thought it was understandable. And so, what's your first move? Let's set up surveillance of the operations. That's not going to make it sketchier. Yeah, because they were like, the whole time they were like, we feel like we're being watched. Because they were being watched the whole time. I mean, and then furthermore, the justice system failed. Mm-hmm. And then they knew they fucked up, so they just covered their ass. And I mean, you know how I feel about law enforcement. I love and respect them, but shit, you fucked up. Admit you're wrong. I mean, y'all both fucked up, clear as day, but... Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. also, Sarah was... She's so good. Like, what a good person to watch your your brother, she, her younger brother, who she had grown up with, the only friend that she has growing up for the, however long on the mountain, get, like, you see his body, and then your mom gets shot right next to you. Well, and your little sister. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then to go on, and in this documentary, she, you know, she speaks, like, a little bit ill of everyone involved, but for the most part, she seems to have forgiven and, like, gotten over it, and she talks about, okay, well, I know the FBI uses this situation in their training academy to, like, this is not what you do, this is all wrong that we're doing, and she respects the fact that they've, like, learned from their mistake, at least, 
And I, ooh, I would not, I would not have that grace and... I don't know. I guess another one of my biggest problems with this whole deal is uh, when they originally arrested him, they were like, hey, we need help over here. Oh, okay, I'll help you. Boop, boop, boop. Actually, we're actually feds. You're under arrest. I know. I mean, what the fuck? Just go up there and say, hey, man, look, this is what happened. This is what you charged with. We need you to come with us. And then that way, if he's a dick, then you at least did it the professional tactful route. But I mean, you pretended to be broken down. What the fuck? And then you get this out, you make up some bullshit sob story about a bank robbery, right? Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know where the fuck they pulled that one out of. And then it just keeps going, and no one just went up there and talked to him. That's all that colonel did. Mm-hmm. He just went up there and said, hey, man, look. I mean, not saying they wouldn't have been fired on. We don't know. But, but they the would have been more time... justified, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? Well, also, whenever the shooting happened in the at the Y, the guys, like the marshals, were dressed in fatigues. They looked like... Soldiers. They looked like they were coming to attack the house. So, I mean, I don't know whose story to believe. I don't know which, you know. Obviously, they were acquitted, so we don't know who actually did what. But that looks so sketchy. Like, okay, these people are on our land dressed in army fatigues. What is... I know they, were, they weren't intentionally trying to run into them. It was just the dog happened to... Yeah, bad timing. Shit went out of hand. I get that. But, but, oh. but if they would have just try to direct approach I'm, I'm not saying there wasn't a threat factor because there definitely was but they would have just tried a little bit you know a little bit more maybe they could avoid it because if they would went up there and said hey man look you got problems and then uh randy would have been like no i don't and started popping off rounds call the cabs in you you made that bed but mm-hmm. it just kept escalating and then no one knew anything like the sniper guy he knew he hit somebody i'm sorry he knew agreed I mean, roll up with the local county sheriff's car. That way, from a distance, you can read... Clearly identifiable marking. Yeah. Get out or don't get out. Do it from the car. Bullhorn. Hey, man, it's us. We're here to arrest you. If you don't want to come out, we'll bring in all these people and we'll set up around your house. But if you do, like, now's the time. Love you. Bye. Like... That's it. I mean, I understand. I I don't work in law enforcement. This is just me being like... And... It sounds like a good... This sounds like a better plan than... And the fact that the FBI, oh my god, even if the U.S. Marshals had, like, we cannot confirm that they did, offer the warning of, like, you know, surrender now or be taken, do it again. What, how does that even, how is that even a thing? Oh, well, they already said it, so we don't have to do it again. What harm does that do you of giving them a chance to surrender? That's so bloodlusty, like, no, 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 we're just gonna, we're just gonna go for it, like. We have the right to kill, so we're going to kill. Like, that makes everyone look bad. That makes all... I mean, it was the 90s, so whatever. That's why in modern policing, they teach you. Repeat yourself two or three times. You know, eventually, yeah, there's a cutoff point. Mm -hmm. You know, sir, is there anything I can do to get you to cooperate with me? No? Well, fuck. Yeah, okay, sorry. All right. Also, it's probably my biggest pet peeve of all, because, you know, pro-law. Don't out your own fucking people. Don't say, oh, by the way, homeboy's an ATF. I know. What the fuck is that shit? I know. That was so hard. Why don't you, I don't know, work jointly? You know that police departments and federal agencies yeah, they all, work they all jointly. fucking. We want this. We want that. Like, ooh, if you a... want a prime example mm. of that, you need to listen to Case File. They talk about the Silk Road. Oh my gosh, those episodes are so freaking good. Go listen to that. But they basically talk about how in order to take down Silk Road, it was a bunch of different agencies and it would have happened a lot sooner had they, like, you know, shared Stopped information. Stopped it in fucking dick-swinging contest. I mean, that happens a lot, and, like, hopefully it doesn't still happen. I ho- I'm i hoping. Oh, it, hap- it happens. It's, I, I wish it, it wouldn't. Like, I wish there was, like, 
someone that was just like, hello, it is I. I'm in charge of making sure that y'all get the fuck together and share. And it's who cares who brings them down? Nobody cares. No one in like us normal ass citizens aren't like, wow, great job, Sheriff's Department or great job, FBI. They're just like, wow, great job, law enforcement for fucking taking them down. And that's where hopefully the newer generation starts to get better at it and we don't just do the same fucking thing. Yeah, like, check your ego, bitch. Nobody gives a shit that you took this person down. We just care that this person was taken down. Like, we will sit through the 25-minute press conference of every single person involved being introduced. That is totally fine. But damn, like, what is the point? If your entire purpose for being in law enforcement is you want that notoriety of, oh, I caught this really bad person, then, oh my god, get the fuck out because we don't need that. It's a pride thing. It's a money thing. It's a promotion thing. That's all it is. Dick swing. Dick swing contest. What's a common phrase? Too many chiefs, not enough Indians. That's it. Is that a phrase? Yeah. Never heard that. So that is our Ruby Ridge episode. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Just Another True Crime Podcast. We're Natasha and Alan, and feel free to check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. There will be linked in the show notes. If you have any future suggestions for cases, feel free to email us at Just Another True Crime Podcast. And if you're new here, thank you so much for listening. And um, anything else? Nope. Have a great day. Have a great day. Goodbye.